Matthew chapter 4. We're in Matthew chapter 4, but I want to talk about what John the Baptist said for a minute before we go to chapter 4. Remember the preaching of John the Baptist from, John cha- from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist preaching. Remember what he said would happen when the one that comes after him came. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the the last we heard about what Jesus will do from others. And then we saw Jesus come on the scene and be baptized by John, and then led by the Spirit into the wilderness and wage war against the devil and triumph over these temptations. And so the question that would be in our minds after reading of what John said Jesus' ministry would be like, is after triumphing over the devil, will Jesus now bring his winnowing fork to bear? Will he come to his people and judge them and smite the wicked and destroy the wicked with fire? What would it look like for the king to draw near and to bring his kingdom of heaven? This was the preaching of John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is coming. Is that what's going to come now as the king draws near? In Matthew chapter 4, the second half, we have a portrait. Actually, have three portraits, three pictures of what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to draw near. And what we'll find is that it doesn't look quite like we might expect from John's preaching. Those aspects are certainly there, but there's much more mercy and much more restoration that comes. To answer the question, what will it look like for the kingdom of heaven to draw near? We're going to look at these three portraits of the king and his kingdom today from Matthew 12, or Matthew 4, excuse me, 12 to 25. We'll see as we look at these portraits that for the kingdom of heaven to draw near, it looks like bringing hope to those on the margins It looks like putting fire in the bones of disciples. And it looks like bringing wholeness for those that are broken. We're going to see those three pictures in three different sections of our text today. And we're going to look at them one at a time. And that's going to give us kind of a whole picture of what Jesus' future ministry throughout uh, Judea and Jerusalem will look like. So we're going to start with the first portrait. Instead of reading the whole text at once, because these are three pictures, we're going to read each section as we look at it together. So we're going to start with verses 12 to 17, and we're going to see this first portrait that the kingdom of heaven brings hope to those in the margins. Verses 12 to 17. Follow along with me here if you would. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Israel might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll notice here in this first section, this first portrait, that place is really important. Look at all the geographic terms in there. He withdrew into Galilee, left Nazareth, and went to live in Capernaum. Uh, The territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. All of this geographic language is included, and it's not superfluous. Matthew is drawing attention to that. That's why he's drawing out this quote from Isaiah that talks about this promise of light to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's drawing out the importance of place here to show that it's not just the fact that a light has dawned that's significant, but it's a fact, the fact of where the light has dawned that is significant. Notice Jesus is preaching the same message as John the Baptist, right? Verse 17, Jesus is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the exact same message John the Baptist preached in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message, but a different place. And the question then for us is, why is the place significant? Why does it matter where this light is? to use the language of verse 16, is dawning. It matters because light here is dawning at the margins of Jewish society. Galilee matters geographically, not because it's important, but precisely because it's not important. Precisely because it's far away from the center of all of Jewish life in Jerusalem. It's geographically isolated from Jerusalem Galilee of the Gentiles, it is called, because it was one of the first regions, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, one of the first regions to be removed during the Assyrian exile. So the first exile was the Assyrian exile, second exile was the Babylonian exile, when these foreign rulers came in and took God's people out of the promised land. The first one was mainly in the northern regions around where Galilee is located. And they were one of the first peoples to be entirely removed from their home. And what this meant is that Gentiles, pagans, were brought in and resettled into Galilee. And so now we have this mixed community. As they come back from exile, they come back and they're not really peers, peer. They're kind of, uh, kind of half-paganized Jews in the minds of those in Jerusalem. Galilee is on the margins as a mixed community. And yet there's a promise made in Isaiah that... Matthew references here when he says that it's written in Isaiah, uh, spoken by the prophet Isaiah, verse 14. It's Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. You might be familiar with Isaiah 9 as the beautiful promises of the one, the child who is coming, who will be called everlasting counselor, everlasting God, mighty God, prince of peace, the great counselor. This is the promise, and that promise starts in the land of Zebulun, Zebulun in the land of Naphtali in a place of insignificance, in a place on the margins. Notice also, this is a people who had great need, right? They're described in verse 16 as those dwelling in darkness, those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. And the word they're, the, the word they're dwelling is, is really sitting, it's staying, it's oppressed by darkness and death. It's uh, a darkness that they're experiencing like 
like Moses talked about in Exodus, in the plagues, a darkness to be felt when God fills the land of Egypt with darkness. That's what they're experiencing. And in the midst of this darkness, they see a great light. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. In the midst of this shadow of death, a light dawns on them. This picture of the coming of the dawn that is piercing the darkness that lays over them. This is a picture of God's mercy coming upon his people. And it's significant that it comes to the people that are on the outside, on the margins, those who are on, uh, those who are outcast rather from the land of Israel, those who would not typically be considered the ones who God's mercy would come to. All of the expectation for God to be merciful is built around Jerusalem and Judea and the faithfulness of David's throne. And yet here, the mercy of God comes in the form of the person of Jesus Christ, to the people on the margins, to Gentiles, pagans living among the Jews, and to the Jews that are kind of partially Gentile in the minds of Israel. The fact that the light comes to the margins is also significant because it doesn't come to Jerusalem. Jesus, notice, withdraws from Jerusalem at the beginning of this, verse 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Where he was coming from was near the river Jordan, where he had been baptized, which is near Jerusalem. He's withdrawing from Jerusalem. Why? Because John had been arrested. Who arrested John? The Jewish leaders. Those who should have received the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, instead respond to that message by arresting the messenger. Jerusalem itself is rejecting, in other words, this light that's dawning. And so Jesus, in the providence of God, goes out to the margins. And in doing so, he is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. So in a way, he is bringing his winnowing fork to bear. He is bringing that kind of fiery judgment to bear by withdrawing from the people who say, we have no darkness in us. Right? Just like we talk about when we do confession and we say, if we say we don't have sin, we lie. We do not practice the truth. We do have darkness in us. And these Jews in rejecting John are saying, we don't have anything we need to repent about. And so the light withdraws from them in judgment and goes out to the margins. This is one of the factors, one of the portraits we see in here of the kingdom of heaven is that the hope comes in the form of the light of Jesus Christ, in the form of his preaching the good news, the hope comes to those who are out on the margins. The second portrait we see, the second portrait we see is that the kingdom of heaven and the king brings fire into the bones of disciples. Verses 18 to 22. 18 to 22, probably a somewhat familiar text, the calling of the disciples. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately there left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. We see here Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he starts to build the core of his church. He's calling his disciples. And what is he building it out of? 
He's not building it out of the famous and the important in Jerusalem. He's building it out of the driftwood available in Galilee. The fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, he chooses to call to come to him and follow him. It's a remarkably irregular call. It might not feel like that for us. We're used to the idea of Jesus saying, follow me. But this was really weird in his day and age because Jesus was traveling around like a rabbi, teaching and gathering students to himself. And the way rabbis did that is they would teach and then students that wanted to study with them would come up and say, can I follow you? And they would say yes or no. It is not normal at all for rabbis to call their own students, to pick their own students. And yet here, what Jesus is doing is he's calling these four people to follow him as students, to begin an apprenticeship with him. It's a really irregular call. Jesus is the one that chooses. It might seem irregular as well to us because we might seem like Jesus just met these random guys and then called them to follow him. That seems weird. This is not the first time that Jesus has interacted with them. If you read the other gospels, you see in John and you see in Luke that it's likely that these guys were disciples of John at first, John the Baptist, and that they met Jesus through John the Baptist as John in chapter one, right, says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so they were already beginning to be drawn to Jesus and beginning to get to know him and his teaching. And yet they had not yet done that rabbi thing where they go and say, can we follow you? It's Jesus himself who takes the initiative and calls them to follow him. He calls them to do a familiar activity, fishing, right? He uses this analogy both because it's what they are doing, so it makes sense to them, and also because it is an analogy from the Old Testament. If you look in places like Jeremiah 16 or Amos 4, you'll find the language of fishing for men, even. Jesus is not inventing something necessarily new here. But in Jeremiah and in Amos and in other places in the Old Testament, the fishing for men is for the purpose of judgment. It's God's going to send people to hunt down his rebellious people and bring them into judgment. Or God's going to send people to hunt down those who hurt his people and destroy them. Fishing kills in the Old Testament. And fishing for for these disciples killed, right? They were not gathering the fish into this net to put them in a nice tank and to feed them and take care of them, right? They were gathering them in this net to slaughter them to feed their families, And yet here, Jesus takes this familiar activity and gives it a new purpose. Now, he says, you are going to be fishers of men. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You are going to pursue these people and you're going to bring them into the nets. And the purpose of that is to bring them into life and the kingdom, to invite them in to experience the kind of hope that we've seen that's dawning in Galilee. Jesus calls them to the hard pursuit of fishing for men for the sake of life. Notice also their extreme response. This is remarkable. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he says in verse 19. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And it's interesting about this story that we have two callings, very similar, right in a row, and the same language, right? Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
in Hebrew, there's no, there's no way to underline something. So all through the Old Testament, you have repetition. And that's the way of underlying something. And Matthew, as a Jew familiar with the Old Testament, even while writing in Greek, he's going to repeat things to underline them. So he's repeating here, immediately they left their nets and followed him, or immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him, in order to underline how irregular this response was. The question for us that should come to our mind is what was so compelling about the call, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, that would cause them to leave their living, to leave family, to leave stability, in order to follow Jesus. I think at least two pieces are in play here in this picture. One is that Jesus, through what he's already taught them and what he will teach them, and in the call to follow him in order to be fishers of men, is radically redefining what the good life looks like. He's radically redefining what it looks like to pursue happiness and fulfillment. These guys kind of had a good life. It was a hard life. Fishing was no easy task. But it was right up there with farming in one of the most important tasks in the community. And so they would have been in the lower classes, yes. But they would have been kind of in the upper end of the lower classes. They would have had tremendous stability. Working with their father, owning their own boat like that, that would have been a good gig. A hard one to walk away from. It would have been the equivalent to perhaps the American dream. Some independence, some security, some stability. It would have felt comfortable, and yet Jesus called them to walk away from that and to consider instead the good life being an apprenticeship to this king and seeking to establish his kingdom. He called them to a new picture of the good life, and we'll see that unfold as we walk through the book of Matthew. Not only that, though, I think Matthew also wants us to know here in their response That Jesus, when he speaks something, his words actually do something. They cause what he says. So when he tells them, follow me, his words actually cause them to follow him. Here's here's what I mean by that. In verse 20, it says, immediately they left. Verse 22, immediately they left. Matthew's using the same language. And the word left there, the word left there is the Greek word aphimi. And that word we've already seen twice. But it's translated a little bit differently. If we look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, remember what's happening. Jesus wants to be baptized, but John would prevent him. And then Jesus tells him, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. It's the same word there, Ephemi. Then he consented. Then John, Jesus said, let us do this. And then John, let them do that. Chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus says in verse 10, Be gone, Satan. Right? And then verse 11, what happens? Then the devil left him. Same word, aphemi. Then the devil left him. The devil did what Jesus said. John did what Jesus said. These disciples did what Jesus said because Jesus' word actually produces what it calls for. And so when Jesus is calling these new disciples to come and follow him, Not only is he laying out for them this attractive picture of what the good life looks like as his apprentice, a hard life, but a good life, but he's also creating in them what's needed to be able to radically leave 
all they hold dear and follow him. In other words, this is why I say that Jesus' calling puts fire in the bones of these disciples. It calls them to a radically new discipleship, a radically reoriented way of life. And the fire that Jesus puts in their bones is both the fire of this picture of this life and the very fire of the spirit itself that's leading them to do this. The right response to the kingdom of heaven is to have this kind of fire in the bones about the work of the kingdom, which is fishing for men. So this is the second portrait we see. The third portrait we see, Jesus bringing wholeness for the broken, is in verses 23 to 25. Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. If we notice here in verse 23, there's three actions Jesus described as doing as he goes throughout all of Galilee, right? Verse 23, teaching, he's proclaiming or preaching, and he's healing. Of these three actions, though, the emphasis in this paragraph is very clearly on healing. Matthew draws out more fully the scope of the healing that Jesus performs. And the question we need to ask then is, why does Matthew emphasize healing here? Why does he emphasize Jesus' healing ministry? This is kind of a new emphasis that we haven't seen before in Matthew, but we'll see it unfold a ton after the Sermon on the Mount in chapters uh, 8 and 9. One of the reasons Matthew emphasizes healing is because healing was clearly needed, right? All these people coming to him with all of this brokenness really need to be healed. There's real physical suffering at play And Jesus comes to restore what is broken. There's a practical nature that when physical suffering is being endured, the intense physical suffering can sometimes make it hard to hear the promises of the gospel. It can feel like go and be well, be filled. And Jesus comes here and brings healing to these broken bodies, enabling them in many cases to be able to hear more fully the message that he's going to proclaim. So he brings healing, first of all, because it's needed. But second of all, and I think more significantly even, and what Matthew wants us to see in here, is that healing like this is a mark of the kingdom of heaven. It's a mark that the Messiah has come and that the kingdom of heaven is near. This is Jesus' message, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And healing like this shows that the kingdom of heaven is near. If you want to keep a finger in Matthew and turn back to Isaiah for a sec, Isaiah 35 Isaiah 35 talks about this in verses 5 to 10. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. 
The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In other words, a time of restoration, a time of wholeness is coming to God's people. And what will be the sign that these things are upon you? It will be the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man leaping like a deer. Healing is a mark of the kingdom. If we look at Matthew 10, we're taught to expect this as well. Matthew 10, 7 to 8. Jesus tells his disciples as he sends them out, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice what they're supposed to do along with that proclamation. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. This is what Jesus tells John the Baptist that he ought to look to in Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the Messiah, in other words? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So in other words, why Matthew emphasizes Jesus' healing ministries, one of the reasons is that healing like this is a mark that the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's necessary, it's a mark that the kingdom of heaven has come near, but it's also just in general a beautiful picture of the kind of restoration that Jesus comes to bring. In the hymn, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts writes one of my favorite lines in that hymn. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is what Jesus is doing as he brings healing, as all of the people in the region bring the diseased, the sickened, those, those tortured, uh, tormented by various physical ailments and those struck with seizures or struck with demon possession as all of those are brought to jesus and he restores them he is making his blessings flow wherever the curse is found and he's bringing us a picture of the wholeness that accompanies his kingdom he doesn't heal everyone and he doesn't heal everywhere the kingdom is not yet here there is still sickness and disease the kingdom is not yet fully consummated i should say The kingdom is brought near, though, in the person of Christ. And these healings provide a beautiful picture of the wholeness. It's a foretaste of the consummated kingdom that we read about in Revelation 21 earlier, right? A place where there's no death or dying. There's no tears anymore. Everything has been made new. And Jesus here, in bringing the kingdom of heaven near, is giving us a taste of that. In other words, the healings here are about healing but they're also pointing to a greater wholeness. And I think Matthew wants us to recognize that. I think from this portrait number three here, we should also recognize the simplicity 
of kingdom ministry. Notice from verse 23 what Jesus is doing. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing. Or I think we might even say more generally, restoring what's broken. Teaching the truth, preaching the good news, restoring what's broken. Go and do that. That's what Jesus tells his disciples to do in Matthew 28, right? He sends them into all the world to baptize and to teach people to obey all that he has commanded, which includes living this kind of kingdom way. Notice the response of the crowds as well. Verse 25, great crowds are following him. Right? Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. If you geographically plot these, these are covering the points of the compass northeast and southeast, uh, uh, northeast and southeast, northwest and southwest. All the region is coming and responding as Jesus manifests the wholeness that the kingdom of heaven brings. It naturally draws people in. Jesus here is fishing for men, just like he told his disciples that they're going to do. He calls them and then he brings them on this fishing trip, teaches them how to do it. And here he forms the first church. You've got people called, people attracted to what they see as the kingdom of heaven manifests, and they're gathered around the person of Jesus Christ. The church itself here is beginning And it's the start of a whole new kind of wholeness that the kingdom of heaven brings. So the kingdom of heaven brings wholeness to the broken, brings hope at the margins, brings fire in the bones. What do we learn from these things then? What ought we do in response to these portraits that we see? From the fact that the kingdom of heaven brings hope to the margins, in other words, a specific place, We learn that though the kingdom of heaven dawns where darkness and death reigns, that's only when there's recognition of darkness and death, right? The kingdom of heaven doesn't dawn at Jerusalem because they, like the Pharisees, say we see. And so God says, well, then your blindness remains. The kingdom of heaven dawns in those who recognize that they live in a region of darkness and death and that they need a new dawning. It teaches us to not despise the small beginnings of the kingdom of heaven. We've learned in Daniel, as we've seen this vision of this small stone that is taken out of the earth and breaks apart the idols of the world, the kingdoms of the world, and then grows into a massive mountain that fills the earth. We've learned that the kingdom of heaven starts small. We learn later, as Jesus gives the parables of the kingdom of heaven, that it starts like a mustard seed and yet grows into a giant tree. We ought not despise the small beginnings of the kingdom of heaven as it dawns, but rather we ought to rejoice with the dawning of the light. We ought not also to assume that we dwell in the land of light. This is a warning for those who would say, we have no need to hear this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We ought not also to be ashamed that we come from the margins. Jesus didn't come to call the important. We're told later, in through Paul that not many were wise or not many were of noble birth not many were important when called into the kingdom of heaven but that Jesus came to call those who are sinners that is the criteria for being called to participate in the kingdom of heaven and that's a good criteria because that's what we are 
from the fact that the calling of Jesus puts fire in our bones, we ought to learn that the kingdom of heaven requires us to make a radical reorientation of what we consider to be the good life. There's an explicit call in here to the disciples, right? Follow me. There's no call to you to say, go and do likewise, at least not explicitly. But there is an implicit call to all who would follow Jesus to have this same kind of response. It's not a response that means you're always going to leave everything that your, your job, your family, etc. It's not a call that everybody's going to do that. It is a call to radically reorient your life. Your life changes drastically when you come into contact with the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven makes demands on you and defines what the good life is. Notice these disciples are not called to individualistic salvation. A lot of times when we think about what it means to follow Jesus, we might think it's mainly about me and Jesus. That wasn't the case for these disciples, and that isn't the case for any disciple, because every disciple is called to go and make disciples. It's not about you and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus and his people. It's about you and Jesus and the body of Christ. It's about you called into an apprenticeship with Jesus to follow him in making disciples. It's not an individualistic view of salvation. It's also not a call to add Jesus on top of your old life as if somehow Jesus is like the cherry on top. You know, they're they're still fishing and they're also going to wear their Jesus club club pin or something like that, right? They're going to identify with Jesus but should still just continue with their old way of life as if everything else was normal. This cannot be the response to the kingdom of heaven dawning. If it's truly a kingdom of heaven that's dawning in a region that was dark and full of death, and now it's brought light and life, things can't be the same. Things can't be the same. And so if following Jesus for us looks merely like tacking on Jesus to whatever our old life was like, we probably aren't really following Jesus. That would have been not sufficient for these disciples, and I don't think it's sufficient for us either. I think all of this is oriented around what we view the good life being. We are called by this text and by other places in Scripture to view the good life as living in an apprenticeship with Jesus, to view the good life as following Jesus, being fishers of people. Or whatever metaphor would help us understand that we are called to be oriented around the work of Christ in bringing the kingdom to bear on our life and the lives of those around us. We ought to ask Jesus to both issue his call and to do what he does in Galilee, which is gather the weak, because none of us are sufficient for the task of living in an apprenticeship with Jesus. Jesus doesn't call those who are powerful, those who are strong, and then use their strength. Jesus calls the weak and then equips them. As we see his word working like it does here, we're reminded of that and we're given hope that even as he calls us, we too can do powerful things for the kingdom because his power works through us. From the shape of his ministry as a ministry bringing wholeness, we learn that the kingdom of heaven brings this blessing wherever the curse is found. And so we're forced to ask ourselves, do we pray for the same kind of blessing to flow from us? I think this is a challenge to pray more frequently for healing. 
Jesus talks more fully about healing elsewhere. So we're going to talk more about how we should think about healing in an age right now versus what happened then. We'll talk more about that later in Matthew. But for now, I think it's a challenge to say, do we, do we pray honestly for healing? Do we ask the great physician to do powerful works like he did here? Do we ask him to have wholeness characterize us as the people of God? Do we look restored? Do we display what he has done in these folks and how he's done it in our life? Do we display that, display that in our life together? Does wholeness flow from us in practical and spiritual ways? I think it's a challenge for us as well to see this kind of wholeness that the kingdom brings characterize not only our interactions with one another, but our interactions with the world. Do we bring a taste of the kingdom wholeness to the world in both practical ways and in spiritual ways? Do we look at the whole person? Do we bring the kingdom and the light of the kingdom down to the cellular level in the body, even as we bring it to the nations. To the extent that we pray, like Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, thy kingdom come, we're praying for these things to be true of us. We're praying for these things to be true of us as a church and us as individuals, and we're forced to ask the question, are they true of us? Is this what the kingdom of heaven among us looks like? And to the extent that it's not, we're called to heed Jesus preaching, right? What does he preach? In chapter 4, verse 17, he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If the kingdom of heaven is not present among us as we see it in these pictures, then the right response for us is to do what Jesus calls us to do, which is repent. Repent, which includes asking for forgiveness, and it also includes turning and seeking to manifest the kingdom in these ways. Jesus is giving us a picture of the kingdom as he models it. And he's going to give us in the Sermon on the Mount the ethics of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom. What does it look like to walk in this way and to structure your life in this way? And so we're called to approach this Sermon on the Mount that we'll study over the summer with a heart of repentance and a heart seeking to learn to display the kingdom like we see here in Matthew 4. So in light of that, friends, let's pray and ask our Savior for help. Jesus, you bring the kingdom perfectly. Having the fullness of the kingdom in yourself. And it is remarkable that you use weak servants to bring that kingdom to bear in the world. And so in light of our weakness, Jesus, we ask you for help. We ask you for help that we would not despise the margins, but we would go, to you, go with you to the margins. That we ourselves, being on the margins, would rejoice that light is dawning. We, we pray that you would help us to radically reorient our life around your kingdom and to know what that looks like in each of our individual circumstances. And we, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring increasing wholeness in our church and in our community and show us where you're doing that and how and how we can participate. We long to display this because it is glorious to live under your reign. Your kingdom is a happy kingdom. 
And so I pray that you would help us to see that and help others to see that through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.